my soul cries out, Hallelujah, praise and honor unto Thee, praise and honor unto Thee, praise and honor unto Let me say thank you, uh, Wendy, for leading us through communion and uh, in a manner that was very sensitive to the day and to the passage that we're looking at because the encouragement to look up to Jesus is a great one in the context of the story of Gideon where we discover Gideon when we first meet him down in a pit, a place that I'm guessing some of us have dwelt on occasions when things have been rather difficult and so thank you Wendy for that word to uh, lift our eyes to Jesus and focus on him our saviour. I don't know about you but when I was young I uh, had the experience of keeping goldfish and we'll just pop that slide up. Uh, how, how many people here have had goldfish as pets at some That's a lot of people, excellent. So you'll understand a little bit about goldfish and keeping goldfish and the joys of goldfish and you'll know too that if you don't keep the tank clean what happens well the fish probably don't necessarily die they might die but they're not easy to see are they because they the tank tends to go this slimy green color and you lose all of the joy of watching the fish and so uh, I, I experienced this when I was young we had goldfish inside and then when I was a bit older probably not that old there was a, an old tank down in my grandmother's fernery towards the back of the garage uh, that I was able to have some fish in. The, the tank was on a bench, there was a tap nearby which was really handy for topping up the water but there was no power out there. And so as a young person I spent ages trying to figure out how to, how to create a filtration system that was self-perpetuating. How to do it so that it would operate when I was not there? Because I could suck water out and I could put water back, but it required me to do it. And if uh, the tank had been at the house where there was power, you could have run a little pump filtration system or an air filtration system. Some of you might have even had those under gravel filters. Do you remember those? No? Yes? Underneath you had to take all the gravel off to clean them. Well, I didn't have any of those things and I was trying to figure out for ages... How can I set it up so that I can siphon water out and then have it reticulate all the way back in? What I did not know was I was walking in the footsteps of giants, the giants of physics who had for years tried to invent what essentially was a machine like this one, a perpetual motion machine, something that would just keep going without the input of any additional energy. And uh, I spent a lot of time and a lot of energy trying to rack my brain and probably wasted a bit of water in the process and may have even endangered the life of some goldfish too, uh, trying to figure out how I could overcome. What I did not know then was the first and second law of physics or the first and second law more specifically of thermodynamics. Uh, without some kind of input of significant external energy, my efforts all came to naught. And I share that story with you today because uh, there's a pattern of loss of energy or what's known in physics as entropy in the book of Judges. This is a really poor graph, I'm not good at doing digital graphs. But if you step back 
from the book of Judges for just a second and take a look at the whole book, one of the things that we actually see happening through the book of Judges is that Israel sort of starts here and they slide down into what we call apostasy or rebellion against God. He sends them a, a, a judge and they come back up. They never quite get to where they were. And then that judge rules for a while and then they slide back down into, we'll go this way, back into apostasy uh, and then a judge comes along. But what we're seeing, if you look at the whole book, is a gradual slide down and it's a pattern that we've, we're able to identify even as we come here to Judges 6 and we're still quite early in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6 verses 1 to 24 is the account of the call of Gideon. Now we're hitting some of the stories that will be well known because of course the story of Gideon is a very popular one for kids church and many of you will have been familiar at least in part with Gideon and it's rich in application for us too as we go through it. We're going to go through it, uh, I'm not going to read the whole passage as one chunk, we'll work our way through this morning and think about what God might be saying to us as we do go through uh, but one of the things I'd like you to keep out uh, keep an eye out for is just to note how deep the trough is this time how far Israel has slipped and how difficult it is to even recalibrate to uh, to worship of God but let's pray before we come to that Lord we do come to your word this morning dependent upon your spirit because we know without your help these words on the pages are just words but your word is alive and it's active and it's brought to life by your presence and so today God speak through your word we pray let me get out of the way in a sense God and let people see let, a, let our congregation whoever's watching online hear and see from you Lord and so today as we do look to you Jesus we pray, pray that you would be amplified and I would be minimized in this space that your spirit would enliven our minds and pierce our hearts and we ask this in Jesus name amen let's uh, go to the text the first line uh, judges chapter 6 verse 1 again Israel did eyes uh, evil in the eyes of the Lord and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites now by now this should be fairly familiar territory you know they were going okay, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord for seven years, this time he gave them into the hand of the Midianites, you see the pattern that is happening. Who though were the Midianites? Well these uh, Midianites are rather interesting because they came, if you can see here on the map, they came from way, way down in the southeast. The last time I spoke was about Eglon, the um, Edomite king, um, he was a little bit further north than the Midianites. The Midianites were people who lived right down in the southeast, way below um, the Dead Sea area there. And unlike some other nations who, who invaded territory with a view to ruling politically, the Midianites were not that interested in political rule. They didn't send a king up and set him up on a throne. The Midianites were actually more interested in economic dominance. And what does that mean? Uh, basically they would wait till the Israelites had planted their crops or had uh, produced some livestock and then they came roaring into the country on their camels and they had a lot of fast camels as we will see in a few moments and they went right through the land and they plundered everything that they could 
they went as far north and you can see here the arrows right up there into the Jezreel Valley near Issachar uh, and everything before them they decided was for them. Economically they plundered Israel and Israel could do little more than survive. This is what the text actually says. Because of the power of, sorry, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Malachites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and they ruined crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. That's pretty difficult, isn't it? Can you imagine what that would be like? Everything that you have worked for, everything that you need to sustain you is being plundered. The text goes on to say they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. You notice what they did? They cried out to the Lord for help. Emotionally and psychologically, the Israelites had been beaten down by this annual invasion, so they cried out for help. But once again, you'll notice they didn't cry out in repentance. They cried out for help. This time, if we follow the text, and we'll come to it in a moment, God does something a little unusual. In the past, what has he done? He's raised up a judge. This time, God does something a little different. He sends them a prophet. And it reminded me a little bit like, uh, I was thinking about this earlier this morning, um, in Luke chapter 11, when Jesus was teaching on prayer... Uh, Jesus said, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door will be opened. God's in the business of answering prayer but you'll notice this time when the Israelites cried out to him, he didn't answer it in the way that they wanted him to answer. You see that? We want you to send another judge. And so instead, this time God sent prophets. Let's have a look at what the prophet actually said. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites on in whose land you live but you have not listened now the question is what was this unnamed prophet doing what was the task of the prophet well as the spokesperson of god this person who and we have no idea who it was not mentioned no names nothing is given to us reminds the people and perhaps to a degree us too of what their basis for appeal to God was. You see, they cried out to God for help and God said to them, hang on a second. Let's just think about this for a moment. I'm not going to just belt in and rescue you and make everything right. Let's just ask the question, why are we in this place? And you'll see here that uh, God accuses the people of three things. First of all, you have been grossly unthankful. I've done all of these things for you 
bringing you out of Israel, uh, sorry, out of Egypt, uh, but you've been grossly unfaithful, you've run to idolatry, and furthermore, you've refused to listen. You haven't said thanks, you've run to idolatry, and you're not even listening. You see the contention there is between God and the people uh, as expressed by this prophet's. Now, if you were to write the next line without looking at it, what would you expect to hear? That's it. Therefore, this is what I am going to do. But let's uh, not go there just yet. What is the spiritual lesson for Israel? Well, one of the lessons that Israel is being taught is this. Unless sin is recognised, you can't expect God just to call uh, on, on hand, beck and call and do whatever you want Him to do. Don't expect God to bail you out of your trouble if you're not prepared to acknowledge what got you there in the first place, is what this prophet is saying. And so to us, just because we're part of God's community, we can't expect God will give us preferential treatment when it comes to offending Him. Our God is a holy and just God. And even being in church is not an automatic ticket to heaven. God who is always gracious, is also committed to his holiness and he wants the people of Israel to understand that this time. Don't expect me just to run in and rescue you again unless you understand the deep offence that has been caused by your rebellion. Now, in normal circumstances, we would expect the next line, therefore, I am going to, some kind of censure, some kind of action, some kind of judgment... And as you read this text, it's almost like this prophet's lost the last page of his sermon notes. You know, he's come up and he said, this is what the Lord says. Um, what does the Lord say? I've lost the... Actually, just really quickly, I remember a story I was told years ago. <laughs> there was a preacher who was preaching uh, from uh, the Genesis narratives, Adam and Eve. And he was right in the middle of it, going full bore. And Adam said to Eve, and Adam said to Eve, this is after the fall... Uh, and, and he said, I think I've lost my last leaf. <laughs> right, park that. Forget I, forget I even said that. You would expect, let's get back on track here, um, that this prophet who has come with such a strong word from the Lord, you have shown no gratitude, you have taken up with the idols... Uh, you have not listened to me, therefore I'm going to judge you. That's not where this goes. What happens instead of obliterating the people, as God have every right to do, what did he do? Yet again, he raised up a saviour, just as he had before. One of the questions that we've engaged with from time to time is, how do you, uh, how do you marry your understanding of God as He is revealed in the Old Testament with God as He's revealed in the New Testament? Some people have a real struggle in that space. And yet here we have a fundamental consistency between what we know of God from both of those uh, revelations. Because here we have God who is prepared, even in the face of that rebellion and idolatry, to again reach out with grace. These words of Paul from, uh, from Ephesians chapter 2 would be true for the Israelites as they are for us. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace 
that the Israelites were saved yet again. How did God do it? Well, verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abazarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. That's a very, very interesting couple of lines, isn't it? I really, I really love how the narrator keeps us abreast of where these events took place. It kind of appeals to the part of me that likes to get out of Bible Atlas and have a look and see where these things happened. But the writer didn't do it for that reason. The reason the narrator tells us exactly where these events took place is because he wanted us to understand that Gideon's father was a pagan. In fact, more than that, Gideon's father was a pagan priest. Because in those days, the oak we have a mention of in this passage was not planted as some kind of avenue of honour. A big spreading oak tree was typically a place where the uh, Baals, where Asherah was worshipped. It was a pagan site. It was a, a, the location of the, the, the local temple of Baal, if you like, the Canaanite fertility god I spoke some weeks ago. Gideon's family of origin, think about this, Gideon who is being raised up by God as the saviour for Israel, as the next judge, his family of origin is terrible. It's a, it's a family of pagan priests for goodness sake. His father is a guy who is steeped in idolatry and yet uh, Gideon is the one that God has chosen to use. There's many applications we could make from that. What we do though find is um, Gideon hiding in a wine press. I thought I had a photo of a wine press. Here we go. Um, just to give you an idea, wine presses in the ancient times were generally a bit of flat ground with some stones. The wine, uh, the grapes would be tipped into. People would get in and do a bit of a dance on. And you can see in this picture then there's a channel down into a cistern, which is where the grape juice would have been collected. And probably Gideon was down in the cistern, threshing the wheat, hiding from the Midianites. And the Lord comes along and chooses him. It's a strange place to find the person who's going to be the next saviour of Israel, isn't it? Down in a hole in the ground. But it's a timely reminder to us that in terms of the kingdom of God, true leaders don't choose themselves, they're chosen by God. And it's worth remembering that, isn't it? because that's in almost complete opposition uh, with what happens in our world. It's starting to happen already, you know, we're s seeing signs up on fences around the place, you know, I want to be your leader, look at my nice photo, vote for me kind of stuff. In worldly terms, that's how it works, isn't it? I'll be the one that leads, come on everyone, come with me, but in terms of the kingdom, that's not how it works. In fact, I cannot think of an example in Scripture where a leader lobbied for a role and was given it by the blessing or with the blessing of God. I'm more than happy to be corrected on that one, but I haven't looked hard enough to be able to say it totally with confidence. But from memory, I can't think of anyone through the Scriptures who said, yeah, 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 I'll be the leader and it's ended well. Think of someone like Absalom, for instance, you know. He decided to gather around him troops and and supporters and build himself a kind of an, an army and that didn't end well did it then of course there was James and John who uh, very courageously uh, through 
another uh, avenue asked Jesus if they could have preferential treatment, you know, could we sit at your right hand in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus slapped them down pretty fast too. Generally speaking, as I understand it, leaders don't choose themselves, they're chosen by God. And of course, when James and John came to Jesus and he did uh, remind them that that's not how it worked, he also said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you need to be a servant of all. True leaders are chosen by God. I remember one of the very first addresses that our principal at Bible College gave, I don't know, Sam, if you remember, I'm, David might have done this regularly, the principal, David Price, would occasionally get up and, and speak, well, many times actually, get up and speak at chapel services, and on one occasion, I remember him saying really clearly words that made a deep impression on me, a, a gathering of people, probably as numerous as we are here, who were, who were training for pastoral ministry or mission overseas, all sorts of stuff. And he said to us in that context, if at this time, at the commencement of this year, if there is anything else you can do that will satisfy you, if there's anything else that you can do that will satisfy uh, you, then go and do it. Because unless the hand of God is so firmly upon your back, that this call that you are responding to in terms of service is irresistible, then you're in trouble. If you're doing it for yourself, in other words, at some point you will stumble. Because that hand needs to be so firm upon you that it will sustain you through the challenges and through the difficulties. God is the one who chooses true leaders. They don't choose themselves in the kingdom. And I want to say to you that that actually goes for everyone, uh, not just, you know, in that context it was people who were preparing for different ministry contexts, it's true even in the church. And it sounds a little bit countercultural in a way because one of the questions we ask when we're first thinking about who can serve in kids' church, for example, is this, do they have a pulse? <laughs> Are they alive? If they're alive, then we can use them, right? But here's the message. Wherever you serve, it ought to be in response to the call of God. No matter what it is, whether it's playgroup or kids' church or on the barbecue or at the coffee cart or wherever it might be. And one of the challenges, of course, of hearing that, hearing that call, uh, on many occasions I've spoken to people who've said, I'm not sure, you know, where God is calling me. The answer to that question is, what are you passionate about? What do you enjoy doing? Because oftentimes those things are married together. But I do want to say, in the context of our church, what we look for in servants is people who are called into those roles and who sense God's leading into those places. And as an invitation, even in responding today, to be uh, in that place again, as in many senses we are here uh, reconfiguring, rejigging, restarting church after a period that's been really difficult. We're looking at uh, doing different things, small groups and reactivating activities, that sort of stuff. What is God saying to you in that space? What is God leading you perhaps to respond to at the moment? 
don't hang around waiting for someone to ask you if God's actually niggling away, perhaps quietly suggesting to you that there's somewhere that he wants you to serve, go and talk to somebody about it. Come and talk to Matt or myself or one of our elders or whoever's serving in that space already. We would love to hear from you. Let's go back to the text. I'm going to go backwards here. I've got these slides out of order. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, you've got to really love the Lord's sense of humour, don't you? You mighty warrior down there, threshing grain in the pit, fearful that you might be caught by the Midianites. It's a strange greeting, and it's actually a very problematic one for Gideon, because he was asking these kind of questions. If God is with me, why am I down here in this pit? If God is with me why is it necessary for us to hide from the Midianites year after year if God is with me where are all the wonders that we heard about when we were coming out of Egypt and more broadly more generalized this question if God really is God why is all this bad stuff happening that's the kind of question a lot of people ask in our world today isn't it if God truly is God why is our world in the mess that our world is in let's hear how Gideon responded he said in verse 13 pardon me Lord very politely uh, Gideon replied but if the Lord is with us why has all this happened to us where are the wonders that our ancestors told us when they said did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt but now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian that uh, answer indicates just how badly Israel needed to hear what the prophet had to say you have rejected me you have been ungrateful you have embraced idolatry you have not listened Gideon in this context wanted God to account for not doing what he'd done in the past forgetting that Israel's disobedience played a very significant role in that in fact um, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words Isaiah 59 in response to this same kind of question he says no the arm of the Lord is not too short to save no his ears are not too dull to hear but your guilty deeds have made a gulf between you and your God your sins have made him hide his face from you so as not to hear you and if we come back to the text verse 14 God doesn't answer Gideon's question the Lord turned to him and said go in the strength that you have that is the strength of God and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And then a second time, with a great deal of respect, but also with a sense of inadequacy, Gideon answered, uh, sorry, questioned the call once again, saying, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And then in verse 16, frustratingly, God does not answer Gideon's direct question, but for a third time affirms the call. He says, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Now, if we were to go back to the text, just step back for a second, what was it, do you think, that God really wanted Gideon to hear? What is the core message that Gideon was to hear in God's communication with him? Four words... I will be with five words <laughs> you know where I'm going with that I will be with you three times 
three times, God says, I will be with you. And it must have been a little frustrating for Gideon because Gideon, who's like me, wants to know, how's that going to work? You know, what are you going to do, God? How are you going to be with me? What's it going to look like? How are you going to use me? What sort of provision is he going to make for me? What are the details? I want to know the details. God says three times, I will be with you. And that's all God says. And that's enough. That's enough. Gideon didn't need to know how God was going to go about the process of redressing wrong. Gideon didn't need to know about how God was going to act for the salvation of his people, but everything Gideon was going to need was summarised in that statement, I will be with you. And it's a remarkable promise that was made to Gideon in that moment. And it's a remarkable promise that God has actually made through his word from the start to the end. It's a remarkable promise that God made to people like Moses who said, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And God said, I'll be with you. It's a remarkable promise that was made to Joshua. When Joshua said, I'm not sure how I'm going to do this. And God said, I will be with you. If we come to uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the prophet said, The Lord will give you a sign. This is speaking prophetically of the coming of Jesus. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. I will be with you. It's appropriated as a title by Matthew in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, speaking about Jesus as God with us. God is with us in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. And then supremely God with us as Jesus returned to his Father in heaven and promised his Holy Spirit to be with us. We come to John chapter 14, verses 15 to 19. Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. What a wonderful promise that is. God with us. I remember an incident um, when I was at school as a young person. I don't know if you went through this kind of experience. I was reasonably new in the school and, you know, you're trying to make your way in peer groups and stuff like that and it's, it's treacherous at the best of times, isn't it? Who doesn't want to be liked by their peers? And there were different peer groups you're trying to find your way in. It just so happened that, um, that I was uh, a football umpire, the closest I ever got to playing, um, and there was an incident where one of the students who was amongst my peer group swore at the teacher who was umpiring with me. Now that was considered in those days something of a, a relatively serious offence. I mean, you wouldn't hang someone for it, but it wasn't just going to be let go. And the fact that we might consider it fairly low level is actually more of a commentary on our state of, uh, of mind now than then. At any rate, uh, as it turned out, the student denied anything happening and um, the teacher and others got involved and uh, the student gathered around him a cohort. He was a bit of a bully, this fellow. Um, a cohort of Confederates who bought into the lie and, uh, and it, things were unravelling. And the teacher, who was a Christian man, uh, who I had a great deal of respect for, came to me and knew that I was a Christian and he said to me, David, wh what actually did happen? You were a witness to this. Tell me the truth. 
And there was never in my mind any doubt about whether I should tell the truth or not, but I knew that there were going to be consequences. And so I told the truth, and there were consequences, you know. This, uh, this fellow and his posse of outriders, they made life awkward, as is typically the case, you know, when you're amongst teenagers. Not all teenagers, of course. Yours are probably wonderful. Um, and I can remember and I tell you that story for this reason because I can remember that day the sense of acute loneliness in a sense uh, in that space and walking across the school quadrangle and asking God why is this happening a bit like Gideon's question why is this happening and then suddenly being overwhelmed by the presence of God in such a manner that it was tangible I could reach out and touch God and God's message was, I am with you. And I walked in that moment, and I remember it as clearly as, that, as though it happened yesterday, that even in the midst of this turmoil that was going on, and again, it was not, it was not high-level stuff, really. We're talking about, you know, very low on the Richter scale of seriousness. But even in that context, the message was unmistakably clear, I will be with you. And it was a wonderful thing. It was wonderful to anchor myself into that, uh, into that experience too because there are other times where, uh, you know, we face trials, we face difficulties, we face strife. Uh, to go back to that clear and unambiguous moment where God's presence was so real and anchored in the promise of the Scripture, the reality of the Scripture is a, was a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I've sat and talked uh, over the years with people who've been going through all sorts of strife, whether it be with children or in marriages or in workplaces. And, you know, there's times where I've, I've wished I could just pull out a manual and say, here's what you should do or here's the spiritual word of the day for you. And the only message that I've got for them is this one, God will be with you. What a wonderful message that is. And it's enough. I've seen people sitting in the pits of grief. I think I've shared uh, with you uh, the first funeral I did back here in Australia was of a little two-year-old boy. On Sunday morning, he was climbing on the stairs, playing. And then he died, suddenly, cot death, through the week. And walking up to the hospital, wondering, what on earth am I going to say to this mother who was sitting there nursing her dead child? And I didn't have any words other than, God is with us in that space and that's enough and I could tell story after story uh, some of them like that others very very different that just remind us time and time and time again that God is with us in the same way that God promised Gideon that he would be with him and that is enough you can go a long way on that promise can't you it's uh, it's full of energy that promise it's like supercharged fuel. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus said to his disciples, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Of course, that's in the context of sending them out on mission, but broadly speaking, it's a promise that is very real through always. Now, the question, of course, in this space is, what does that mean for you today? What does it mean that God is with you today? 
What are the challenges that you face today? What are the difficulties that we share together in this space? One of the, uh, one of the, how do I put this politely? One of the things we tend to do in church is come with our happy faces on. You know, we walk in, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Because it's politically incorrect not to be when you come to church, isn't it? But I doubt there's a single person here that doesn't come with stuff that they're carrying that's heavy, whether it's family, the future, uncertainty, change, guilt, lost opportunities, uncertainty about workplaces, who knows? What is the message of the scripture for you today? I am with you. God is with you in that space. Well, there's much more we could do with this passage. Um, I'm not going to spend any more time on it today, up right through to verse 24, the last part of this section, other than to say um, Gideon, Gideon was quite impressed by his visitor. Um, his visitor was also very patient because Gideon said, just hang around, wait for a few minutes while I... I um, bring my offering and set it before you and so the angel of the Lord who clearly didn't have much on his appointment book at this particular time stayed for some time because Gideon went out and prepared a young goat, uh, made a meal, that doesn't happen in 10 minutes and uh, brought it back, offered it to the Lord. If you have a look at the passage here, the Lord, uh, the Lord put the tip of his staff uh, the angel touched the meat, the unleavened bread, fire flared from the rock, consumed the meat and the bread, the angel of the Lord disappeared and Gideon was overwhelmed. I've seen the Lord face to face, but the Lord said, peace, don't be afraid, you're not going to die. It just reminds us of Gideon's, uh, Gideon's state of shock and amazement. It's perhaps one we ought to adopt too. We treat God as a familiar best buddy and Gideon reminds us, even in this place, that God is awesome and holy. But the takeaway message for us today is that one which we've just been emphasising, that God is with us. I'm going to invite you to pray with me and as we conclude our service, continue that posture of prayer. Our team's going to come and sing in a couple of minutes. But as we do pray, um, let me invite you to consider what your response might be today. So um, just bow with me. You might like to close your eyes in this space so that you are able to reflect Two things uh, that we might think about. First of all, what is God saying to you about following his call? What is God calling you to do to serve? What is God calling you to do response in response of his hand upon your back, wherever that might be? But two, what does it mean to know that God is with you, whatever the circumstances that you're facing today? We've got some folks who are going to be here at the front and are willing, able and would love to pray with you if there's um, something you do want to pray through with them. If God's Spirit has been speaking to you today and it's time for you to respond, don't leave this building and say, I'll do it later or I'll catch up with someone afterwards because the moment passes and the opportunity might be lost. Let's pray. God, we do thank you again as um, we reflect back on your word, the richness of of what's in this short passage that we've looked at today. 
It's a reminder that it's you, God, who chooses. It's you, God, who calls. It's you, God, who looks down upon us, who are like Gideon down in the winepress sometimes, down in the pit. And yet you affirm us by saying, I am with you, mighty warrior. A reminder that it's not our strength, God, that we go in. It's your strength. And it's not our capacity that we rely on. It's yours. You're the one who calls. And Lord, whatever it is that you're calling us to do today, however it is that you're calling us to respond, we pray that you'll grant to us the courage to do so. It might be that you are calling us into relationship with you for the first time, to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and uh, that our place is to repent and ask for forgiveness and accept the gracious gift of life that you give. And so, Lord, for anyone here today who's hearing that call, we pray that there might be time to respond right now. Lord, there are others who have walked the road of faith at times through life and have allowed the bright lights of the world or other things to be distractions. We pray, Lord, that if you are calling people back to you today, they would hear that voice clearly and unambiguously and seek too to respond to the prompts of your spirit in this moment. And Lord, for each of us, whatever our circumstances, whatever the challenges, whatever the difficulties, whatever the trials, the tragedies, the grief, the sorrow, the heaviness, or even the opportunities that we face, Lord, we thank you that your word promises us that you will be with us. And so, Lord, we repent of the times when we have sought to be God and ordered our own days and ordered our own lives and done it without reference to you, without care about your love for us or your concern for us. Lord, we repent of the times where we have turned our backs on you. And we look up today to Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, And we see when we look at Jesus, Jesus standing before us with arms open wide, ready to receive, arms open wide, ready to welcome us into his family. Arms ready to walk with us through this week, through these days ahead. And so we release ourselves into your loving arms too. Lord, we thank you for this time for our service today. May your spirit sit heavily amongst us, work your purposes, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.